The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Sportbox. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Well, crude prices trimming back gains after Brent had its best day in history. President Trump pointing the finger directly at Iran over those Aramco attacks, but saying he's in no rush to act. Not yet. We have the best equipment in the world. We have the best missiles. And as you say, you just bought the Patriot system. It's nothing even close. Uh, But uh, no, I don't want war with anybody, but we're prepared more than anybody. Meanwhile, the Dow snaps an eight-day winning streak. Energy, however, has its best day of the year, while President Trump attacks the Fed again ahead of a two-day meeting, citing the oil shock as another reason for an interest rate cut. Stocks across Asia trading mostly lower amid the geopolitical risk as the US and China confirm deputy-level trade talks will take place in Washington this week. The EU holds the line on Brexit after Jean-Claude Juncker and Boris Johnson meet, while the UK Supreme Court prepares to hear claims that Johnson's parliament suspension is illegal. Let's take a look at these markets and what I want to do today, just at this wall here, and if you're listening on the podcast, a delayed welcome to you as well, is just challenge a bit of conventional wisdom, okay? Because I think there's a few things where one can say it is not as obvious as you think about the direction next of markets, of oil prices, of US interest rates, of global rates, etc. So let's just challenge a few conceptions here as well. For a start, enormous rally undeniable that we saw in both Brent crude and WTI. Brent up to 68 bucks, got higher than $70 at one stage in the last 24 hours. WTI uh, rallying again pretty hard, but both coming off, as you can see here in the current session. If you're listening on the podcast, WTI is down 1.3%. Brent crude is down nine tenths of 1%. But as great as these moves are, they've only taken a still to within the previous range. Now, I know that that's not trying to diminish the huge move we've seen, but you've got to remember, we've been here quite recently as well, 62 bucks and 68 bucks respectively. We've been here previously in the last few weeks or so, so it is not quite as dramatic in terms of taking us to a new paradigm as some might have you believe, some of the more excited commentators out there as well. The other point I want to make, just to challenge the conceptions out there. Again, I'm not giving you a base case scenario. I'm giving you an idea on the other side of the trade. Possibly this heightened geopolitical tension actually could lead to lower oil prices. Now, bear with me on this one as well, because yes, we've got higher prices at the moment. Yes, people are concerned about escalation. But does the action of the aggressors here, now we don't know who the aggressors are. We know that certain players are pointing the finger directly or indirectly at Iran. Does this action show that there is collateral damage that can take place on both sides? Hence, does this stay the hand of those who would want a very aggressive strike against those? such as the Iranians as well, i.e., do we reach some sort of status quo, some form of equilibrium, which actually takes down the risk of further escalation because there is a proven action now from this huge, huge refinery attack that actually there could be damage and collateral damage on both sides. 
I'm just chucking that one out there as a scenario in case you think this is a slam dunk on one side of the equation. The other thing I want to talk to you about is the fact that we've got the start of a two-day Fed meeting. So let's move on and take a look at some of these US markets. The US markets, and again, I saw a stupid headline today. I won't tell you where I saw it, saying that the, the, the market sold off aggressively on the back of it. Well, of course, I know these were flattered by the oil stocks, but these are not aggressive moves. You, ladies and gentlemen out there, know that from having watched this show for so long. Three tenths of 1% lower for the S&P and the NASDAQ is not a major reversal of markets. The, the point I want to make about the Fed moving uh, today on tomorrow, uh, and, and despite the, the, the persistence from the president as well, is the fact actually that it is not a slam dunk move in either direction for rates. Because yes, I know the president wants it down. And I know that this could potentially be a drag on the economy. But there are, there are inflationary effects that just cannot be ignored. 0.2, 0.3% on CPI on top of PCE as well. This will mean that the Fed's got to just be very, very careful about the ramifications of higher energy prices across the spectrum, despite the fact, of course, there are grave concerns about what it means more broadly, higher energy prices, and in the US as well, which keeps calling itself energy independent uh, for this kind of action as well. So do not use conventional wisdom to say that these trades are a one-way bet, that the Fed is moving in one direction, that oil prices are just moving in one direction. I think we have to be quite measured. One direction. A boy band of the 2000s, uh, loved by many millennials and many middle-aged people. Very good, the way you did that. Uh, we should have a big conversation about this because there are lots of sw parts swimming yeah. around in the markets at the moment. I just want to chuck a few ideas out there for people the, that is away from the conventional. And the repo rate story, I yes. think, is fascinating as well. So we'll, we'll, we'll find some space, I think, in this 30 minutes to talk about this. Let's just come back to this energy story, though. Um, crude prices are pairing gains following Monday's surge after an attack on Saudi Arabia oil facilities, which removed half of Riyadh's daily crude output from the market, or around 5% of global production. President Trump says it looks like Iran was behind the strike, while NBC News sources suggest American intelligence believes the attacks originated from Iran. A Saudi Arabian military official says Iranian weapons were used in the attacks, but didn't outright blame Tehran. Meanwhile, President Trump has talked down the prospect of military intervention. Do I want war? I don't want war with anybody. I'm somebody that would like not to have war. We have the strongest military in the world. We've spent more than a trillion and a half dollars in the last short period of time on our military. Nobody's even come close. We have the best equipment in the world. We have the best missiles. And as you say, you just bought the Patriot system. There's nothing even close. Uh, but uh, no, I don't want war with anybody, but we're prepared more than anybody. President Trump there. Well, let's get out to Hadley, who joins us uh, from Riyadh with more on the story. Hadley, uh, this is interesting because I think the markets are very sensitive to the prospect of retaliation here. And perhaps part of the reason we've seen the crude price just ease a little bit is that the response so far appears to be very measured. Absolutely, Jeff. I mean, what we heard really over the last couple of days, at least from the Saudi side, was a deafening silence. You know, after that initial statement by Saudi Aramco and the energy minister saying, you know, listen, this is what's happened. 5.7 million barrels, uh, half of our production off the books. This is going to be really interesting, I think, uh, to follow over the next several hours because we've just learned that His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz, Saudi Arabia's new energy minister, is planning a press conference in Jeddah around 8 p.m. local time. And hopefully a lot of these questions about output and how quickly they're 
they're going to get back uh, to the regular uh, numbers in terms of production and how damaged uh, these facilities actually are. Hopefully all of the rumors that we've been hearing over the last couple of days will we'll at least find some, some truth and some answers. And we're certainly going to be bringing that uh, to you live from Jeddah in a, several hours from now. But I also want to mention on that geopolitical front, and perhaps that's going to be the loudest noise that we hear today, uh, at least until His Royal Highness has the chance to clear up some, uh, some questions for us, is really the tit for tat with Tehran when it comes to President Trump essentially now putting the finger, blaming Tehran directly for these attacks. At the same time, those in the Pentagon apparently quietly at least, suggesting that it isn't within U.S. national interest uh, to consider a strike uh, because there were no U.S. Um, facilities and no U.S. Uh, folks involved in this attack. So I, I think it's going to be an interesting narrative to watch play out in Washington. Um, and yet again, a story that's taking place right here in the Middle East, uh, somehow they lose the narrative and, and the narrative starts coming out of D.C. We heard from the foreign ministry finally in a statement. They put the blame uh, not squarely on Tehran. That's the, the most important factoid, I think, to come out of this. They said that they were Iranian weapons, definitely, that were used in these attacks, biggest terror attack uh, in history, really, in Saudi Arabia, certainly on their oil facilities. But they didn't uh, go all the way there. And I think it's interesting because you know, we saw the UK foreign secretary yesterday, as well as President Trump, really urging the Saudis, uh, frankly, to take a stand here, waiting on the Saudis, it seemed, almost 24 hours, the president, to, to see if they would be the ones that would put this blame squarely on Tehran. And they didn't do it. They stopped short of that. And that, I think, really does speak to the level of concern, not just here in Saudi Arabia, but in the UAE and all the Gulf countries, about whether or not the president is prepared um, to do more than talk whether he's prepared to take action. And I think that that's going to be the most interesting narrative to see play out, frankly, over the next couple of weeks here, because this is something uh, that for the countries in this region is particularly sensitive, not just because of the clear vulnerability of oil installations uh, in this part of the world, in spite of the billions of dollars that they've spent on weapons to, to, protect, to protect themselves, but also, frankly, you know, at the end of the day, the United States can withdraw, the United States can take away their presence, the Fifth Fleet, of course, in Bahrain, but these guys are stuck here for the long haul. So this is going to be a really interesting narrative to see play out. And the Iranians have said they're content to let the international community decide, to let the UN uh, make the case at the UN, to take this case to the UN. And the Saudis seem to be willing to get a little bit more international support, at least, before they make any kind of move. Thank you, Hadley. Let's uh, move on. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani has said the attacks on two Saudi Aramco processing facilities are a reciprocal response by Yemen to years of Saudi aggression. Rouhani made the comments following a meeting with his Russian and Turkish counterparts. Tehran has denied involvement in the incident. Well, let's get to Richard Gori, who is the managing director of JBC Energy Asia. Uh, and Richard, very good to uh, see you today. And I'm um, fascinated to see what you and the team at JBC think about this high political risk story because what I want to do is go back in history and look at other incidents where the risk for both sides was enormous i.e. in the Cold War we had this acronym it was called MAD and of course there was the the magazine on the back of it mutually assured destruction has this incident in Saudi Arabia and a huge incident as well actually stayed the hand of some of the hawks in the region who think there aren't consequences of their actions sir Yes, it seems to be uh, because the reaction from the market has been extremely muted overnight. And I think this is 
basically showing that that really people don't know what the next steps are because the geopolitical risks are so high. The, the market obviously has reacted very strongly to the immediate news with a 20% jump, then pairing back some of the gains. Some of those gains have been given back again today. Uh, but now the market seems to be a little bit paralyzed by, you know, the, 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 the multitude of options that are available to it uh, going forward. And of course, you know, you have very mixed messages coming from the, the White House first saying they're locked and loaded. Now they're giving something of a dovish approach, saying that they don't want war. Obviously, Trump is this is not what he is. He's looking to pursue the, the firing of Michael Bolton on, 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 on uh, last week was already an indication that they may be uh, taking a more positive approach towards Iran. So uh, I think there is a little bit of a paralysis in the market right now in terms of what is the next steps. I think first we really need to know is what is the damage and, and, and what, how long is, it, is, is, the, is the crude going to be out of the market? That's what the market really wants to know. Richard, let me just uh, pull out one of those messages in your commentary there from the uh, hawk to, to dove type of stand we saw from the US president from locked and loaded to no rush for a response. How unusual is it to have these types of mixed messages from the White House and how does that complicate some form of retaliatory strategy that the market might be waiting for? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, clearly you don't need me to tell you that this is uh, a quite unique White House. Uh, the administration is guided very much by the president who is, is changing his opinion from, from tweet to tweet. So, I mean, this is clearly something that the oil market has not had to deal with before. We had very much in the past, you know, we had, we had two divisions, the hawks and the doves, and we clearly knew who was which uh, today. Because we don't have those signals, it's very difficult to judge what will happen next. Richard, I want to get into the price action because uh, lots of questions initially about how recessionary any spike in the oil price could be. And some commentators pointing out, well, in previous recessions, you had a 90 percent spike in the oil price. This time around, what we had about 9 to 10 percent, a little bit more in the trading session than we settled back a little bit lower than that. We are far off a 90 percent handle. What do you make of the potential for an escalation here and what sort of triggers we would need to see this time around for a recession? Well, I mean, we are always, we were before the before the weekend's attacks, we were very much, you know, on the lower side of the, 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 the demand forecasting in terms of economic performance next year. I mean, we have been anyway for a year, so that was not news to our clients. And um, of course, high oil prices are going to cause problems for the economy. You're going to see particularly developed economies struggle when oil prices are high. I would say, however, that the, the muted response so far is not that significant. I mean, Prices at $68, it, it, it is not really reflecting the geopolitical risk that is on the table. So I think there, we would need probably a, a further moves up before we could really worry about the recessionary effects of it. I think $68 oil is, is, is of course, worse than $60 oil, but not significantly so that it would push, us, uh, it would push our economic outlook into recession. Uh, Richard, just as we wrap up with you, um, could we get a final thought on what this now means for Aramco and the IPO timing? Yeah, well, it's it's not good news. Obviously, you know, we know that Saudi, Ara- Saudi Aramco was going to list in Saudi Arabia uh, in, a, in a domestic IPO. Uh, obviously, um, 
their biggest asset right now is offline. So it would seem that this is not going to be on track. I mean, I think it would be difficult to go to IPO uh, right now. Of course, we may hear from the minister later in the day that the damage is less significant than we thought and that they can they can they can get this units back online fairly quickly. However, of course, there's still the psychological impact of what happens if there is another attack on the facilities. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Richard Gorey with us, Managing Director, JBC Energy Asia. The polls have opened in Israel for the second time in less than six months. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is seeking a fifth term in office after he failed to build a coalition following a vote in April. Netanyahu faces indictment for corruption, but could escape the charges if his right-wing bloc wins 61 seats. His Likud party is neck and neck with the centrist blue and white party. So it looks like we might have a trade deal between Japan and the United States. Uh, The Japanese saying currency won't be a big issue in that deal. But let's wait and see whether it gets finalised. This, of course, appears to be a bit of a warm up for the big one. Does it mean that we will see progress in negotiations with China? More on that when we come back. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Deputy trade negotiators from the U.S. and China will hold talks in Washington on Thursday in another attempt to resolve the 14-month trade war. The meeting comes ahead of high-level discussions in October. The two sides have not met face-to-face since July. U.S. President Donald Trump says his administration has reached an initial tariff deal with Japan and he intends to enter into the agreement in the coming weeks. Trump says the two countries have also inked a deal on digital trade, neither of which require congressional approval. In Japan, the foreign minister said he plans to reconfirm the U.S. will not impose new auto tariffs at the finishing stage. Meanwhile, the finance minister said a currency provision that prevents competitive devaluation will not be included in the deal. So why is this relevant? I think we're looking at trade deals, how far they're moving for a sign of what it could mean for China, for any potential negotiations down the track with Europe. And if I can just go straight to a couple of big things, farm, it seems as though uh, there'll be more access for US farmers to sell product into yet another market. But again, the lowering of those tariffs happened under TPP anyway, so farmers would have got the same type of deal. Autos, it feels like uh, Japan might escape an auto tariff. And maybe if there's a deal with the Europeans down the track, that would be 
good news for for a German auto company. So there's that. But when it comes to digital, I think this is where it gets interesting because it's meant to be a guideline where it's very similar to the provisions under the USMCA, which effectively means that you uh, don't force the disclosure of source code by companies that are regulated. And, you know, that's a big issue when it comes to China demanding access potentially because of security issues to some of that code, uh, demanding that, you know, you have servers that are local servers in individual countries. That's not the type of deal the Japanese have signed up for. So it also tells you where there's some sort of complication. When the Europeans come into the mix, uh, the flow of data across borders without taxation. The French have already gone for taxation on some of that data and data services, don't forget. So when we're looking at deals that might work elsewhere, you've got to say, well, the Japanese signed up for this digital deal, but others may not from the Chinese to the Europeans. I think I'm going to have a nosebleed here because my head is exploding with the complication Mm -hmm. of the arrangements that you're talking about. And that's the problem here, isn't it? Because the United States pulled out of TPP under this president. And as a consequence of that, there is no blanket agreement that covers off the United States with the Asia-Pacific region. So we've gone to a bilateral approach, which is selective in the areas that are relevant to particular countries based on the president's idea of what he wants from those countries. Um, And so there are some things included and some things not included. But just taking a step back here, while this is all happening and knitting in Steve's point at the wall, which I thought was fascinating, if you look at the broader indices that are measuring international trading activity, all of this is having an impact. Mm. So the CAS Freight Index, which has just been uh, released, which is a survey of um, transportation of freight in the United States, fell year on year for the ninth straight month. Okay, that data implies, quote, we see a growing risk that GDP will go negative by year's end. That is from the freight index statement. That should be worrying mm. to everybody. And while you were making a great point at the wall about you know, how binary or otherwise the view on the markets appears to be in some quarters here, should we be doing the duck test? Does it have a beak? Does it have webbed feet? Yeah. Does it quack? And you've got this freight index story. You've got the higher energy price here. You've got the weakness in global manufacturing. There are all sorts of parts of this duck test that are coming together as we fixate on the risk of a global slowdown into recessionary conditions. It's amazing. We've year. actually done this the other way around because you started off on the minutiae and the real detail. detail. <laughs> You've gone out of stage. I actually want to go out another stage, if I may, just to add one more level on this and ask all our viewers, everyone, two questions. Do you feel that free trade and globalisation have peaked? And I think most people would probably say yes. And do you think that protectionism will rise regardless going forward of any trade deal between China and US? And I think unambiguously, I would get a vast majority saying yes. So my point here, and it touches upon your bilateral versus multilateral as well, is regardless of the hopes that are being expressed by equity market traders buying when they think there's deputy level talks in Washington between China and US uh, and selling when Kudlow says, oh, we've got a long way to go. The fact of the matter is most people think that global globalisation and free trade have peaked, uh, hence seeing the dismay at the WTO at the moment as well. And B, most people also believe that protectionism on the rise. So how do you trade that? Because if you generally feel things are going to get worse, 
then maybe there's a false dawn saying, oh, we think we're going to get something on the trade deal from China. You know I agree with uh, many of the things you've raised, but funnily enough, in contrast to that narrative, is this Japanese deal, because in some ways it is a deal that is very much a, a globalization type of deal, trying to bring down barriers, get access, and keep free-flowing data across the internet that would be very much in lockstep with or the globalized world. is it another manifestation world? of this splinternet that you and Jeff have been so brilliantly commenting on for a long while, i.e. you've got one set of standards with the US and Japan and their allies over there, and then you're going to have another set of standards with China and its one Belt and Road allies over here. But this is the test. So the Chinese have been talking about being globalists, so pushing the cause for more globalization. The question is whether they can take it to the next step when it comes to data. Because with, when you look at this deal, it's the Chinese who would object to not having access, potentially, to, to the com company's source code, not having data stored locally, but for it to be you know, transferred across the web. And when it comes to taxation, who knows on that front? So the Chinese need to almost sort of put up uh, some sort of front that says, yes, we do agree with this. We're, we're happy to not have this sort of access. We're not happy to step away from the provisions we've been demanding. So we have control over our society. So the question is just how far the Chinese move towards globalization for the next phase around digital. I think you can see that through this Japanese deal that maybe America first has been very much a message to try and get borders to open up. That's what this deal looks like in contrast to everything we've been talking about so, for many so what months. So what we flagged up here is lots of complications for investors as they look at the twists and turns of risk on, risk off, bond markets, equity markets and so on and so forth. They've got to to deal with all of this white noise that's going on in the background. Let's refocus for a moment on what's going to happen over the next two or three days here. The granddaddy or the grandmammy of all central banks will give us a rate decision this week that could be key to the way people interpret the information that they're getting and what the response will be from monetary and ultimately perhaps fiscal authorities. And I just want to throw into the mix here to make sure we cover it off here, particularly for those who are listening to the podcast. We had a very odd spike in the repo rate yesterday in the United States. Uh, it ran up as high as 4.75%. This is a short-term overnight borrowing rate, effectively. There are those who are beginning to ask questions as to whether the Fed is losing control of some parts of the money market curves. Uh, one of the comments from John Hill, a rate strategist at BMO Capital Markets that was quoted in this uh, Bloomberg story I'm reading was, it, uh, the end of the quarter uh, is bordering on chaos. The overnight repo rates um, bordering on chaos. Secured funding markets are clearly not functioning well. This is something you've got to bear in mind as you think about where you may have gone to get a higher return. Because if liquidity is coming out of the market in some parts of the lending market, mm. then you need to be a little bit nervous at this point. It may be... We've seen this before. It, it, it may be nothing. It may be an anomaly. But the fact that it's happened just a few days away from a Federal Reserve interest rate announcement. That's a lot of ideas. Something, something that you should think about. I think we've gone peak podcast, you lucky sausages <laughs> out there. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.